This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Progressive, The Rachel Maddow Show, The Jimmy Dore Show, The David Pakman Show, Counterspin, The Majority Report, and The Young Turks. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode contains references to both sex and murdering civilians in foreign countries, so you may want to skip the parts about sex. I got no sympathy for David Petraeus. Cheating on your wife of 37 years is a low thing to do, period. And intelligence officials are supposed to steer clear of such dalliances for fear of blackmail or revealing confidential information. So he didn't really have a leg to stand on. But beyond all the personal stuff, Petraeus always gave me the creeps. He had that lean and hungry look. He himself was known to scorn the president's decisions, and he flirted with running for the job himself. He brought us the surge in Iraq, which only extended the war and bloodshed there, and he oversaw the escalation of the war in Afghanistan, which he has fronted for both at the Pentagon and at Langley, asserting without factual basis that we're making fragile progress. He also directed the catastrophic drone campaigns in Afghanistan and Pakistan, and the CIA also continued under his direction to hold and interrogate prisoners at Bagram Air Base with no due process rights whatsoever. So no, I'm not going to miss David Petraeus, and I would hope that President Obama would search for a successor who is not a Langley lifer or a Pentagon gargoyle. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. church bells chime I hope that they would clear my mind they left a ringing in my ears but that drum's still beating loud and clear louder than sirens louder than bells sweeter than heaven and harder than hell louder than sirens If you, like me, last spent significant time playing video games when video games looked like this, uh, it can be disconcerting, even disorienting, to know that video games now look like this. Uh, which is to say, it is really hard to tell that they are not movies. Ultimately, the basic principles are the same in terms of video games then and video games now. Most of them are fighting and shooting games, and for most of them, if you are not really good at controlling your thumbs, you are probably not going to be a world champion at the game. But the increasing, over-the-top visual realism of modern video games is also matched by an effort on the part of video game makers to make the wartime combat featured in so many of the most popular games really authentic as combat. So, so this game you're looking at here is called Medal of Honor Warfighter. It was so authentic that when the game came out a couple of weeks ago, seven Navy SEALs were officially reprimanded for giving classified information about Navy SEAL stuff to the makers of this game, who presumably used it to make it as authentic as possible. In a new combat realism game that came out today, the makers were advised by a guy named Oliver North. Remember him? The disgraced Marine colonel indicted for 16 felonies in the Reagan-era Iran-Contra scandal. He then went on to become a Fox News personality and a conservative movement hero. Oliver North not only consulted on this new game, Call of Duty, that comes out today, uh, he appears as a character in the game. 
Although, look at his hips. In real life, I don't think his hips swing like a hula dancer the way his do in this game. When the character, actually, I don't know, I've never seen him walk. Uh, when the character Oliver North talks in Call of Duty Black Ops 2, this, came, this, this game that came out today, um, it is actually Oliver North's real voice. But here's the thing about this game that came out today and today's news. And it's a thing that I'm guessing nobody saw coming before it happened. The game comes out today. It is set 13 years in the future. It's set in the year 2025. And although the game is supposed to be fiction, the cameo from freaking Oliver North is not the only way they are trying to make this thing seem connected to real people and the real world. There's also an important scene in the game that takes place on a U.S. aircraft carrier. And that aircraft carrier is named the USS Barack Obama. And the U.S. Defense Secretary meeting on the flight deck with the commander of the U.S. aircraft carrier Obama um, is the American Defense Secretary, who in the game is named President David Boswell Petraeus. Before this week, it probably was not a bad bet in video game land that in 13 years, a then 73-year-old David Petraeus might really be Defense Secretary. But now, today, that is a rather bad bet. And it means that this video game, someday in the future, will be unearthed with the same glee and disbelief that accompanied the discovery of the old dating game footage of a very young future Michigan governor, Jennifer Granholm. President Obama was sworn into office as president at the end of January 2009, just over a hundred days after that, less than four months after he was sworn in. The new president did something absolutely remarkable, something that had not been done in more than 50 years. The new president fired the man in charge of the war. President Obama has said that the war in Afghanistan is one the U.S. must win. And senior officials here at the Pentagon have decided it will take new military leadership to do it. Defense Secretary Robert Gates met McKiernan in Afghanistan last week to break the bad news, but waited until today to announce it. I have asked for the resignation of General David McKiernan. Defense Secretary Robert Gates and President Obama relieving General David McKiernan of command. And when they did that, when they relieved him of, uh, of command as the lead American commander for the war in Afghanistan, that was the first time since President Truman fired General Douglas MacArthur during the Korean War that an American president had relieved a four-star U.S. commanding general in the middle of the war he was leading. When President Obama did that, it was the first time in 58 years that anything like that had happened in this country. And then he did it again. After he fired the man who was running the war when he took office, General McKiernan, the replacement general who President Obama sent to lead the war thereafter uh, was this guy, General Stanley McChrystal. There was almost as much of a media cult around General McChrystal as there was around David Petraeus. But a year after General McChrystal took command of the Afghanistan war, he too was fired by President Obama. He was fired for, in effect, insubordination after a magazine article portrayed General McChrystal and his top aides drinking their way across Europe and talking smack about civilian leadership in Washington. Michael Hastings' story about General McChrystal was told first in Rolling Stone magazine, and then it was told to epic effect uh, in his book-length account of the incident, which is called The Operators. So after President Obama's first commander of the Afghanistan war was fired, after his second commander was fired, President Obama turned to the most high-profile military leader in the country, General David Petraeus, to become his third Afghanistan war commanding general. That tenure in Afghanistan lasted a year, as the president surged tens of thousands of more Americans into that country, ultimately tripling the number of troops who had been there when he first took office. 
That year at the front ended for General Petraeus when he came back to Washington to become head of the CIA, a job from which he unexpectedly and suddenly resigned last week, saying he had been having an extramarital affair. Meanwhile, yet another confirmation hearing is due this week for yet another new commander of the war in Afghanistan. Marine General Joe Dunford is due to take over the reins in that war from the outgoing commander John Allen. John Allen is the man who took over from General Petraeus. But while General Allen is still now running the war over there, he too has been caught up in the Petraeus affair scandal. General Allen's confirmation hearings for his next big job, NATO's Supreme Allied Commander, those, those hearings are now on hold. While the matter of General Allen's own personal relationship with one of the women involved in the Petraeus affair harassing emails FBI investigation thing can be sorted out. General Allen is in Washington for his own now postponed confirmation hearings for his next job and for his own now canceled role in the confirmation hearings for his successor to lead the Afghanistan war. In Washington, he is denying any suggestion that he had any sort of inappropriate relationship with anyone. And for now, it seems that the Defense Department and the White House are standing by him while the investigation continues. And while he submits his plans to the president now, for which Americans are going to remain in Afghanistan after the official U.S. troop withdrawal from that war, which is not this year, and is not next year, but doesn't happen any time during the following year until the very end of the year after that. He has submitted plans already for American troop presence in Afghanistan starting in the year 2015. And after President Obama signs off on that post-2015 plan in the next couple of weeks, the White House is due to start their plans for how many Americans have to stay in the war this year, 2012, and next year, 2013, and the year after that, 2014. Those recommendations will be coming from General Allen, who, if you're keeping track now, is the 10th U.S. general to lead the U.S. war in Afghanistan. Before this latest hullabaloo, he was due to be replaced this week by our 11th commanding general for this same war, which is now in its 12th year, with planning well underway for year 13 and year 14, and then something different that they won't call a war, but, will that, but that will still have Americans there starting in year 15 and going on indefinitely. And for the moment, General John Allen, successor to the disgraced Petraeus, successor to the disgraced McChrystal, successor to the fired McKiernan. John Allen today remains in command of the U.S. war in Afghanistan, where 68,000 Americans are at this very hour risking their necks for a country that has not in a decade paid as much attention to that war there as it is now paying to the sexual misconduct and disgrace of one of the many, 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 many men who have led it. 16 military wives, 32 softly focused, brightly colored eyes. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Let's go ahead and talk about the drone strikes, right? Because um, so I'm going to play a couple of clips here from Morning Joe again. I, so it seems to be the only show I'm watching lately. And, uh, and this is amazing for two reasons. One, Joe Scarborough gets something right. 
He's on the right side of this issue. And Joe Klein pr- proves he's he's a craven sociopath. Not kidding. Okay. So they're talking about drone strikes uh, that they weren't brought up at the debates. Really, when they were, they both agreed. And Joe Scarborough actually understands what the problem is with with it, and and he gets it. And here we here we go. It's remarkable the fact that over the past eight years, over George W. Bush's eight years, when a lot of people asked, brought up some legitimate questions regarding international law. My God, those lines have been completely eradicated by a drone policy that says if you're between 17 and 30 and you're within a half mile of a suspect, we can blow you up. And that's exactly what's happening. Hey, Joe, Joe, trust me. I know. I know. You talk to guys in the CIA. You talk to people that are running this drone program. They are focused on killing the bad guys, but it is indiscriminate as to the other people that are around them who are killed at the same time. And the fact that neither party wants to talk about this, I think, is something that's going to cause us problems in the coming years. Now, that's pretty amazing that Joe Scarborough, who is all over this issue from every and normally he's I mean, how could it be right about this, but wrong about teachers and everything else? It's pretty weird that he gets this right. Right. And we're all so what's happening with drones is what we used to do. Like what we did with Kali Sheikh Mohammed is what we, we found out where they were through intelligence. We send in some special ops guys to grab him and then we take him to one of these black sites and we inter- you know, torture him, get the information out of him, right, and try to stop another terrorist attack. And that's how you do, that's how you do it. But that's not how we're doing it anymore. Now, Obama, instead of sending special ops guys, they just send a drone in to drop a bomb and anybody within a half mile gets killed. Right. Here's a kill list. It's Makes so, you nostalgic for Nixon's enemies list. Yes. You know, I know you think it's wrong to just be uh, dropping these uh, uh, drones indiscriminately, but they're really not that expensive. <laughs> <laughs> so, so Joe Scarborough gets this right. So we're so uh, just watch this how this discussion. So you're saying the media is right. Joe, on this, yes, Joe Scarborough gets it right on this time, right? So even so, I won the argument. You win. Thank you. As always, I'm humiliated in front of my wife. I I beat you with my drone. (laughs) By the way, I think a vast number of Americans don't even know about the the drone program. Yes, it's so quiet. Wait a minute, Robert. You know about it, so everyone must know. (laughs) How do you know about it? It Must be in the media. Then it must be perfectly explained if you know about it. That's true. People know about drones. You just want to feel like you're smarter than I am. (laughs) Okay, so here's what Joe Klein has to say. Ready? And, and it has been remarkably successful. But let me take this. He's talking about drones. Drones have been remarkably successful. At, at killing people. At, yes, and at, yes. At, at decimating taking bad out. people. Taking out bad and people. And taking out a lot and, of innocent and people saving, as well. And saving American lives in the process because our troops don't have to go and do this. Or later, within a decade, within 15 years, the entire Air Force could be drone driven. You don't need pilots anymore because you do it with a joystick in California. Yeah, you do with it. Doesn't that sound like he had a little bit of glee in his voice? What well, you- it is kind of bizarre. Like, you don't have to leave the country to go bomb somebody else. It's like, hi, honey, I'm back from work. How was it? Oh, I missed I missed some Arab. I got his kid. <laughs> I mean, why, why do you bring California into this? I don't get that. Yeah, they're not doing it. By, by the way, they're actually, I think, in, in Vegas, in Michigan they or Ohio. Are they in Vegas? Yeah. yeah okay, they so, they're, so they're not in California with the joystick. But it's weird. It's like, yeah, why not we can... Just sitting, uh, you know, somebody in your basement eating Cap'n Crunch in his underwear. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's the kind of killing a sociopath like Joe Klein can get behind, you know, where you don't have to get your fingers dirty and you can just kill people when you sit in your basement in your underwear eating Cap'n Crunch. So uh, I think all we need to do is come up with a workable equation for um, 
how many uh, Arab lives are equal to one American what, life. Yes. And well, then from there, it's just a matter of math. He, it, it's really mostly the, the universe is math. Yeah. So, yeah. And they're going to use those drones here in the U.S. You know, they're already selling them to yeah. uh, major cities. Like, I, saw, I saw a whole pallet of them in Costco. <laughs> no, no, I'm you serious. can. I'm, you know what? You can buy your own drone, and I'm not making that up. Yeah, they're not very expensive. Really? You, they're, they're selling they're, them. Remember how you used to have model airplanes? Armed drones? Yeah. You can have no, your armed. own Okay, well, that's drone, kind of important Your own surveillance drone that you can buy for your kid. I'm not making that yes. up. Okay, here's, here, here's, he keeps going. <laughs> I hate to sound like a Code Pink guy here. I'm telling you, this is causing this, quote, collateral damage. It seems so clean with a joystick from California. This is going to cause the U.S., problems in the future if it is if it is mis misused and there is a really major possibility of abuse if you have the wrong people running the government you mean like the people who just <laughs> ran it for the last eight years you mean those kind of people oh, how about the guy who's running it right now who's killing innocent people why is the cia do the, the cia <laughs> has its own air force now right. And, the, and and the money we spend on it is 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 dark. You don't know how much money they're spending on that. The CIA doesn't tell you what they spend their money on. So have things gotten so bad that Joe Scarborough is reasonable? Things got <laughs> things are so bad that Joe Scarborough is reasonable. You know, I have this to say to Joe Scarborough: If you're worried about problems in the future, you do not belong in this country. <laughs> Joe Scarborough <laughs> is to the left of Barack Obama. On foreign policy. You know, like you say that like it's crazy, but a lot of people are to the left of Barack Obama on a lot of things. <laughs> Shepard Smith. If this was 20 years ago, Obama would be running as a Republican, and if he was white. Shepard yeah. Smith has some very reasonable opinions at times, too. Yes. To the left of Obama as well. Yes. People said that, and that's a guy on Fox News. That's yeah. the point you're making. Yes, Shepard yeah. Smith is more liberal than it's you ever seen that mugshot of him though after he punched the reporter for you know taking his uh, <laughs> parking space yeah no i never saw that that really happen yeah some mugshots it's uh, oh no kidding yeah okay so here's here, joel Klein. next subject <laughs> <laughs> here comes the big payoff for joe klein ready but the bottom line in the end is whose four-year-old gets killed what we're doing the bottom <laughs> The bottom line in wow. the end is who's four year old. So we're going to kill your four year old. We're going to kill a four year old. Let's so, be clear about let's that. Let's be clear. This is you know, even in the case of rape. This isn't. <laughs> this isn't a false choice, by the way. We, if we, we got to kill somebody's four year olds getting killed. You know, Jimmy, if we have to kill the four year olds over there, so they don't four year olds don't kill us over here. That's what it's. Well, you know, you think you here's watch. Listen to what he says. Mm. The bottom line in the end is whose four year old gets killed. What we're doing is is, is does, limiting. Does, does, Limiting, limiting the possibility that four-year-olds here are going to get killed by indiscriminate acts of terror. <laughs> so what we're going to do is use indiscriminate acts of terror over there first, and that ought to stop them from wanting to kill us. That's always the justification. So what Joe Klein is using, and Glenn Greenwald pointed this out, is the exact same theory and thinking that terrorists use. That's exactly, in fact, what the terrorist bomber uh, in uh, Times Square said. He said that drones kill people in Pakistan and in Arab countries, they kill kids and no one cares about them. And so I'm just going to take revenge here. I'm going to kill some Americans indiscriminately. That's what Osama bin Laden says. That's what they all say. And Joe Klein is like, yeah, I guess we think just like them. And that's, David, you said, no matter what we do over there, we're eventually going to do to ourselves. And that is the thing, you know, no matter how we treat our enemy, that's how we're going to end up treating ourselves. And so when we started torturing people, we started torturing our own people. We taught, we, uh, Jose Padilla was tortured. Then they were, they were torturing our own soldiers. Bradley Manning. Bradley Manning was tortured. So, 
you know, Jesse Ventura used to run around saying, sure. how come we only torture uh, Muslims? We don't seem to torture Timothy McVeigh. Well, that's over. We're torturing us again. We're, we're starting to torture us now, Jesse. So it's happening. And now we're killing people in this. We are just, we've become our enemy. Osama bin Laden has won. Well, any black man who's ever been pulled over by a cop in this country will tell you we've been torturing and operating outside the law since the beginning of this country. 600,000 black and uh, Hispanic people in a year could tell you that in Manhattan because New York police stop and frisk 600,000 minorities every year, 90% of them innocent. Nine out of ten just being harassed by the police. And they go, well, it brings down crime. So does martial law. How about we start stopping and frisking everybody outside the Fox News building? We'll see how long that that policy stays in place, right? I bet we'll catch some criminals if we have a stop and frisk policy outside Goldman Sachs. I think Shepard Smith would like it. <laughs> the thing is, it's, a, it's the same a frisk thing that, and don't ha- stop. that happened. that's happening in, in Pakistan, which is it might stop the immediate problem, but it's fomenting it's making a- it anger that is going to just yes. blow up in everybody's face. It's because there's – it's part. can I say – I'll make a broader connection here. It's part of the overall corporatization of America where you only live your life three months at a time, and anything that happens after the shortest of short terms, you just can't – Spend any time worrying about that. It's all about meeting an immediate need to do something, no matter what consequences might come of it. And it's just the way we've we've always done things that way. But it's like that time frame is getting shorter and shorter. Yes. You bring yeah. up, you bring, oh, Go sorry. Ahead. Go ahead. But you bring up torture in the military, Bradley. Man, there's always been torture in the American military from the very beginning. What are you talking yeah. about? Sad sack, Beetle Bailey, Sarge. <laughs> Sarge will never get off that guy's ass for gold bricking. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, I just think it's so odd. Joel Klein, the sociopath, has no problem saying that we're killing kids. Has no problem. And I can't believe it's not all over the news that we're okay killing kids. We're totally fine with it. And this is all because of the World Trade Center. And 3,000 people died. And how many more people have to die for this... We're, Terrorist we're this, attack. Right. How many more? Exactly. So we're we in, killed. We actually killed an American child. The, the Al yes. Mickey, who Obama killed. Was was he sixteen? He was, the son was sixteen. Uh-huh. What color was his skin? Yeah. And they asked Gibbs, Robert Gibbs, Robert, which is the press, uh, press former press secretary to Obama. Some some kid walked up to him and said, "You know, Obama killed a sixteen year old kid." And Gibbs said, "Well, that kid should have thought." about having a more responsible father. Wow. No, he did. Yes, he did. I've said the same thing to your kid. There's one thing about the Petraeus scandal that bothers me a lot, and that's the ability of the FBI to take down any person in the country on the flimsy basis of their private consensual behavior. In the case of Petraeus, it now seems that one low-level FBI agent in particular pushed the investigation forward, and this same FBI agent appears to have had some kind of a relationship with the woman who was allegedly receiving threatening phone calls from Petraeus's own mistress. This is the stuff of a bad soap opera, but what makes it a matter of concern 
is that there seems to be no restraint on the part of the FBI to use all the surveillance means at its disposal to go after someone when no serious crime seems to have occurred. I had the same reaction to the Elliot Spitzer takedown, and I've always believed that he was set up, either by his political enemies or more likely by the titans on Wall Street. Oh, I know what Spitzer did was illegal and hypocritical, but it hardly should have caused an FBI investigation. Someone must have prompted it, just as someone must have prompted the Petraeus investigation. So I got a couple questions. Who's calling the shots over at the FBI? And what checks are in place there to prevent biased investigations from going forward? We need answers to these questions. Or we'll all be vulnerable to witch hunts. I'm Matt Rothschild, and that's how I see it. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal, it will cost you nothing extra, but 7-8% to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. Well, today President Obama stepped into that particular page of the history books when he held his first press conference after being re-elected. He waited longer than any of his modern predecessors to hold the first post-re-election press conference, but he did follow the tradition when he convened the press court today. And he did so in the midst of the controversy over the sudden resignation of his CIA chief, who's also the former commander of the Iraq War and the Afghanistan War, the highest profile military and intelligence figure in the country. So David Petraeus' old job of running the CIA is now suddenly an available job in this administration. And the same scandal that created that vacancy at the CIA has also now touched the current top U.S. commanding general in Afghanistan, whose successor for that job is due to have his confirmation hearings in Washington tomorrow. Well, today, at his first post-re-election press conference, the president largely deflected questions about who he would be appointing to all the top jobs in the administration for his second term. He deflected those questions today with one notable exception. One notable exception that just about took the roof off that room today. Did you see this? Senator John McCain and Senator Lindsey Graham both said today that they want to have Watergate-style hearings on the attack on the U.S. consulate in Benghazi and said that if you nominate Susan Rice to be Secretary of State, they will do everything in their power to block her nomination. As Senator Graham said, he simply doesn't trust Ambassador Rice after what she said about Benghazi. I'd like your reaction to that, and, and would those threats deter you from making a nomination like that? Well, first of all, I'm not going to comment at this point on... Uh, various nominations that I'll put forward uh, to fill out my cabinet for the second term. Those are things that are still being discussed. Uh, but let me say specifically about Susan Rice. She has done exemplary work. She has represented the United States and our interests in the uh, United Nations with skill and professionalism and toughness and grace. As I've said before, she made an appearance 
at the request of the White House, in which she gave her best understanding of the intelligence that had been provided to her. If Senator McCain and Senator Graham and others want to go after somebody, they should go after me. And I'm happy to have that discussion with them. But for them to go after the UN ambassador, who had nothing to do with Benghazi, and was simply making a presentation based on intelligence that she had received, and to, to besmirch her reputation, is outrageous. And, uh, you know, we're after an election now. I think it is important for us to find out exactly what happened in Benghazi, and I'm happy to cooperate in any ways that Congress wants. We have provided every bit of information that we have, and we will continue to provide information, and we've got a full-blown investigation. And all that information will be disgorged to Congress. And I don't think there's any debate in this country that when you have four Americans killed, that's a problem. And we've got to get to the bottom of it, and there needs to be accountability. We've got to bring those who carried it out to justice. They won't get any debate from me on that. But when they go after the UN ambassador, apparently because they think she's an easy target, then they've got a problem with me. And should I choose, uh, if I think that she would be the best person to serve America um, in the capacity of uh, the State Department, then I will nominate her. That's not a determination that I've made yet. Pin drop. Uh, if you are wondering where you have seen this kind of thing before, not just this argument, but that look on his face, the closest thing to temper that we see from this cool, calm, collected president. Uh, we saw this once before in a moment that would have been the most important moment in the presidential debates this year were it not for what happened right immediately after that moment. Governor, if you want to reply yeah, I, I quickly I to do, this, please. I, do. I, I, I think it's interesting. The president just said something which, which is that on the day after the attack, he went to the Rose Garden and said that this was an act of terror. You said in the Rose Garden, the day after the attack, it was an act of terror. It was not a spontaneous demonstration. Is that what you're saying? Please proceed, Governor. I, I, I want to make sure we get that for the record, because it took the president 14 days before he called the attack in Benghazi an act of terror. Get the transcript. It, 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 he did, in, in fact, sir. So let me, let me call it an act of Can terror. Can you say that Rose a little Garden. louder, Candy? <laughs> <clears throat> We all remember that because of what happened at the end there, right? Mr. Romney's uh, face plant failed attempt at calling the president out for something that the conservative media said he had done that he had not actually done. Uh, but the, uh, what happened right before that at that debate was President Obama defending Susan Rice and Hillary Clinton directly by their titles and condemning as offensive Mitt Romney trying to say that that attack was being covered up or that the country was being misled about it. That is what we saw today, again, on full blast at the president's first press conference after being reelected. The Beltway common wisdom on this is that President Obama is picking a fight 
with his Secretary of State nomination if he does pick Susan Rice for that position. And when the Beltway accuses you of picking a fight, they always mean, oh, no, no, you shouldn't do that. But seeing the president up there, uh, president up there talking about this today with such fire in the belly, and seeing how he did that as well in the debate when the same subject came up, I think this might be something more than just picking a fight. There's plenty of reason to be angry, to be concerned about the attack on the U.S. consulate in Libya. It is very much worth being angry at the people who carried out that attack, right? It is worth talking about. It's worth even being angry about why American preparations for something like this happening at an American diplomatic facility uh, were not enough to protect the lives of the four Americans who died, including the ambassador. Those are the questions the congressional committees looking at that attack are going to be asking tomorrow when those hearings convene, including expected testimony from David Petraeus himself, who is now the former head of the CIA. But what does not follow rationally from the anger and concern over the attack in September is the John McCain and conservative media assaults on the American ambassador to the United Nations, Susan Rice, who had nothing to do with the attack or with anything about preparing consular facilities for potential security problems, but who John McCain has nevertheless been furiously denouncing as unqualified and as a person who doesn't understand things well enough like he does. He went on CBS today and called her not very bright, which you will recall is the exact same thing that John Sununu said about President Obama in his role on the Mitt Romney campaign. He called him not very bright. The president's response to John McCain's attempted destruction of Susan Rice and his pledge to block her nomination, and, and McCain's pledge to block her, her nomination as Secretary of State, the president's response to that has not been to say, I don't want to talk about Benghazi, nothing to see here. His reaction has been to say, yes, we should talk about what happened in Libya. But the idea that Susan Rice is going to be your scapegoat here when she has done nothing wrong, that is the part that's nonsense, and I'm not going to go along with that. And you're not using something made up about her to destroy a career that is still on its way up. I mean, picking a fight is what they're calling this in the Beltway media, right? Picking a fight would be installing Paul Krugman at Treasury. Picking a fight would be like picking Elliot Spitzer for Attorney General, right? Picking a fight would be moving Camp David to Hawaii so the president could get in some more beach time. Picking Susan Rice for Secretary of State, if the president decides he wants to do that, would not be picking a fight. It would be more drawing a line in the sand saying starting now, starting day one of this second term, which I just won in a big national election that you lost, starting now we will fight about policy, we will fight about differences of opinion, we will fight about priorities, but we will not have any more fights that are based on nonsense that the right made up to entertain itself. If we have a real beef, we will fight it out, but when it is made up, like the John McCain crusade against Susan Rice, that made up stuff will no longer be entertained at the level of national policy. John McCain. John McCain, along with Senator Lindsey Graham, both Republicans, have been going on this proverbial witch hunt against the Obama administration and uh, Susan Rice, claiming that the administration was deliberately misleading the public about the nature of the Benghazi 
consulate attacks. Now, Senator John McCain has gone as far as to say we need a select committee and we need to figure out what was the quote, Natan? He wants to know who changed the talking points. That was his, that was his quote. Yeah, he's very concerned about the talking points and, and where they went and <laughs> where, where they were stored and how they were changed. Right. So a lot of questions about the talking points. So now he basically issued a statement conceding he was wrong in accusing the, the White House of changing U.N. Ambassador Susan Rice's talking points on Benghazi for political purposes. David Petraeus told lawmakers last week that the CIA's assessment that al-Qaeda was responsible for the September 11th attack that killed the four Americans in Benghazi was taken out of Rice's talking points after an interagency review. McCain and his allies then went on to claim the White House took out the talking points because it was going to undercut the Obama administration's narrative that it had weakened al-Qaeda. Intelligence officials told CNN that the intelligence community was responsible for the changes made to Rice's talking points and that the White House just was not involved in the changes. So McCain responded, and instead of taking issue with the substance of the report, he basically just said, uh, why did administration and intelligence officials not tell us this in closed-door sessions? So now the issue for McCain is, well, we should have been told sooner about that, but he's basically conceding that the, the entire thing was bogus. There's no conspiracy at all after conservative media and a handful of Republicans were saying, huge conspiracy here. Well, of course, it was uh, the election was coming up and they thought it was it was going to help their candidate. I mean, what's the point of talking about it now? Obama won again. You can just drop it. McCain has said that he would block the nomination of Susan Rice for secretary of state if she were to be nominated. And he, he said, quote, I would do everything in my power to block her and that she's not qualified for her for, for that position and that she, quote, should have known better. And I think it's fascinating that John McCain thinks that Rhodes Scholar and Oxford PhD Susan Rice is unqualified as potential Secretary of State, given that he thought, presumably, that Sarah Palin was qualified to be the Vice President. <laughs> I, mean, who, John, I think John McCain is not qualified to speak about people's qualifications. After the Palin incident, definitely. Yeah. Yes disqualified no question about it what's happened to john mccain it's a little sad i feel like what's happened to him he just seems so bitter do you, do you date this back to losing to obama in 2008 that seemed to be the start of it mm. right yeah let's bad. not forget let's not forget that in 2000 ted kennedy almost convinced john mccain to become a democrat yeah so what we're talking about a bipartisan guy you know a pretty moderate guy who since 2008 has gone on an old, angry man streak. He's, he's uh, suffered a fundamental paradigm, sh paradigm shift. Exactly. Right. And finally, at the end of ABC's This Week on November 18th, reporter Martha Raddatz presented a brief viewer mail segment that explained a lot about network news decision-making. 
And finally, your voice this week. Today's question comes from Cheryl Robinson, who writes, What happened in Benghazi was terribly tragic, and now we're hearing of another Middle Eastern war on the brink. Let us and you, the media, not forget about the war that our own kids are fighting for us in Afghanistan. Why is there so little coverage? Well, because unfortunately, very few people feel the way you do, Cheryl. There is a war weariness with the public, and outside of campaign season, the war is not often mentioned. The administration talks about it largely to say, we are leaving. But we should all remember that nearly 70,000 Americans are still in Afghanistan facing death and injury. And we should remember we have promised our combat troops will remain there for another two years. The war is not often mentioned, says Martha Raddatz, a reporter for a network whose nightly news show is regularly watched by 7 to 8 million people. Does ABC really just determine which stories to cover and which guests to book based on what the people want? Was it really the people who told ABC that they didn't want to know about Afghanistan and instead preferred endless news and commentary about, say, the right's supposed Benghazi scandal? Is it really the people who demand to know what Daryl Issa thinks about it and what John McCain has to say about it today? We find that hard to believe, unless the people in question are Sean Hannity and Bill O'Reilly. She told me that her dad was loaded. I said, in that case, I'll have a rum and Coca-Cola. She said, fine. And in 30 seconds time, she said, I want to live like common people. I want to do whatever common people do. I want to sleep with common people. I want to sleep with common people like you. Well, what else could I do? I said, I'll see what I can do. took her to a supermarket. I don't know why, but I had to start it somewhere. So it started there. I said, pretend you've got no money. She just laughed and said, oh, you're so funny. I said, yeah. Well, I can't see anyone else smiling in here. Well, I mentioned that last week, the Egyptian president, uh, Morsi, Coming off of the sort of massive kudos he got for not even really brokering. He didn't just broker a truce between Hamas and Israel. In some ways, he just made two separate deals. One was with Hamas for them to uh, cease attacking Israel. And one was with Israel to cease attacking Gaza. And the commitments that Hamas and Israel made were to Egypt, not to each other. Uh, now, it's a small technical detail, but it's an interesting dynamic that's going on there. And last week, Mohammed Mercy um, basically put out a decree, executive orders on Thursday... I guess they work on Thanksgiving in Egypt, <laughs> saying that, saying essentially that he has all sorts of dictatorial powers. Is that, I mean, he's saying essentially there's no checks and balance on his authority. He could basically do whatever he wants. 
I think that's a fair assessment. That's a fair assessment. The only thing that they would say is that he's claiming this power until they write a new constitution. Right. They claim will be yes, forgive me. He's saying it's temporary, just like every other power grab that has ever taken place in the history of the world. He also gave them a bit more time to write this constitution after making this decree. Right. No, that had happened before. But the, the other thing was, though, is that the judiciary is still very beholden to the old regime. So there's another element of this. Well, yes, you still have institutions that have their own sort of uh, loyalties. The military, in this case, unlike most power grabs, is not necessarily fully on board with the president. It's more of like a don't mess with us, we don't mess with you type of situation. Right. And... It is really the sort of the courts that have been sort of in some way uh, disempowered. And so this has broken apart the movement that essentially got Mubarak out. So you now have the sort of the religious and the secular wings of the Tahir movement have now split apart. And it has caused... Um, rioting it has caused protests it has caused arrests crackdowns uh different attacks on some of these secular groups i think uh we now have two dead 450 wounded and about 250 arrested on sunday Morsi's decree, which limits the power of the courts um, to intervene in the broader assembly, is not being uh, well received across uh, Egyptian civil society. And like uh, Michael just said, he's sort of backing off it a little bit, but not in any meaningful way. So this will continue, and we will see what happens. Um, I've read people who say it's a big reason for concern. I've read other people who say the upshot is is that he doesn't have the ability to consolidate power like a Mubarak did. But, you know. But his we'll party see. could. It's more of a party thing than an individual thing in this situation. We shall see. The mission of this show is to aggregate and amplify the best voices of the truly liberal media, and now you can play a critical role in helping fulfill that mission. I pick out the best clips I hear to share with you, and now you can do just the same thing extremely easily. Now available at bestoftheleft.com, each clip I play is made available individually with simple buttons that allow you to share your favorites on your networks through Facebook, Twitter, by email, and beyond. By myself, I can amplify this content to thousands of people, but collectively, we have the potential to reach millions. No kidding. Become your own media activist by taking one minute to share your favorite content a couple of days each week, help more people plug into the truly liberal media, and be an integral part of this extremely virtuous cycle. Thanks so much for your help.
Joining me today on Worldview with Dennis Campbell is Dennis Campbell, editor-in-chief of UK Progressive Magazine. The book is Egypt Unshackled. That's also the topic today. Dennis, let's start with Egyptian President Mohamed Morsi's uh, extrajudicial declaration that he made, which made some headlines, and then we'll delve deeper into what's happening in Egypt. Uh, what, what was that declaration exactly? Well, basically, the, the declaration is one in which he said that... Uh, no other governing body, most uh, especially the judiciary itself, which, if you remember, going back a few months, other people that dissolved parliament and attempted to say, basically, you have to start all over again, despite all the progress that had been made. They'd had parliamentary elections, they had seated a parliament, they'd had a presidential election, and basically the only thing that, that the... Uh, judiciary was saying could stand was the presidential election and, and he basically is saying I want to make certain that nothing that I do can be stopped by this judicial body in any form. I'm taking power and what a lot of people have assumed that to mean is that he's become the next Hosni Mubarak. He has become uh, the, the dictator of the new Egyptian government and I don't think that's exactly true. Okay, so let's let's go the, down that uh, route. Thomas Friedman had an interesting article earlier in the week where he said the question now is, will President Morsi be a diplomat or will he be a dictator? Certainly, he's framing it, particularly in giving himself credit for the ceasefire in Israel between Israel and Hamas as being a more diplomatic character, although that is not a statement that's without controversy. So what are going to be the key things to look at in the next, I don't know, month, six months, year, to determine what direction is this going to go? Well, you're going to be looking at a number of different factors. I mean, the, from what I understand, what's happening right now as we are filming this and will be going on this evening is that they are rushing a draft of the Constitution through the parliamentary body and through this constitutional body to then make certain that it goes out for ratification. However, some of the commentary I've seen says that because the document is a little bit more strident than people had expected, a little bit more authoritarian, that this first pass is likely to fail so that it comes, he, he, he gets to come back to the table looking very, very diplomatic after it fails at, in election, the Constitution, and then is in a position to come up with a new Constitution, essentially. So he's in a bit of an interesting spot because... Egypt, on the one hand, is the second biggest uh, uh, benefactor of American aid money behind Israel. And at the same time, uh, Morsi has taken, at least when it came a couple of weeks ago, between Israel and Hamas, a very anti-Israeli position. So he has to know that there's a, there's a, there's not, maybe it's not a fine line, maybe it's a bit of a blurry line, but there is a line as far as how far he can go before that aid starts to, to become a question mark, doesn't it? Exactly. And, you know, I think when I, you know, I've read today that uh, uh, our good friend in Texas, uh, the, the man not playing with a completely full deck, Louis Gomert, came out and, and, and said, I don't know whether it was on the floor, I think it was on a radio station that, uh, you know, President Obama has been uh, teaming up with the Muslim Brotherhood. And, and you know, it, it's just strange to see the reaction the minute you have the Muslim Brotherhood come up as a, as a potential party to these talks. 
what a lot of people don't understand is that the Muslim Brotherhood is probably the the, the most moderate of all the potential options that were out there. And the fact is, is that Morsi's a pretty smart guy. He's going to allow this process to go through, and he's going to do what he can to keep you know Hamas happy because obviously they are a part of of Muslim Brotherhood uh, on the very extreme sides of it in the in the West Bank and, and Gaza. But he's not going to do anything to upset the apple cart. In what's been essentially a 35-year peace in the region. Do you think that he's going to be put in a position to directly have to address these reports that we're getting, satellite reports, that uh, there is a refueling, so to speak, of Hamas taking place from Iran and that the, the path for that is going via the Red Sea, Sudan, and ultimately Egypt, which also shares a border with Gaza. Is that going to become a factor for Morsi's credibility at some point? Is he trying to simply make that just not even come up? What's his position? I, don't, I really think he's got enough problems. He's got 80 million people inside the most populous you know, Muslim nation in the, well, actually, they're, they're really more secular, but there is a very large percentage of Muslim and Islamic uh, people inside of Egypt itself. I think he's got enough just to keep himself in power and moving forward from there. The one party that we've not talked about in all this is the SCAF, the Su Supreme Council of the, Al of the Armed Forces, and that is the, the ultimate decider. At the end of the day, if they're unhappy with what happens, they control the guns, they control the army, and if they decide that, you know, this is unacceptable, more she's gone. So he's got to keep a lot of balls in the air and a lot of people happy and show that he's, you know, the moderate leader that everybody expects him to be. Yes, the new constitution has a lot of, uh, of uh, what sends the right off into a tizzy, uh, his founding in Sharia law, but it is not as extreme as what you see in Iran or other parts of the, of the uh, other world. So I don't see... Uh, you know, a, a huge change, but I do think that there are going to be fits and starts. It took the United States 11 years from the uh, Declaration of Independence to actually have a constitution. It's going to take a considerable amount of time before this gets itself settled, and it's only been 20 months. A woman went to the Arlington National Cemetery, right, and she took a picture uh, by the unknown, um, the Tomb of the Unknown Tomb Soldier, unknown. which is supposed to be the most holy or sacred place in yeah. that uh, cemetery. And there's a sign next to the uh, Tomb of the Unknown Soldier uh, that says something to the effect of, uh, "Please uh, be respectful and silent." And silent. And she took a picture where she wasn't so respectful. She and was flipping, flipping off the camera, yeah. and she was screaming. There it is. There it is. Yeah. So it's not clear if she's actually screaming or pretending she's screaming. I think she's pretending. Yeah. Now, earlier, the day before, she had taken a picture. So she's, get this, so she works for a nonprofit organization, right, that helps, I forget what their deal is, but they, they help out people who are struggling. Yes. And see, she won some contest or something. She was awarded this trip. Mm -hmm. So she goes on this trip. So the night before, she took a picture next to a no smoking sign, and she was smoking. So this time, she's taking the picture. 
now people are she, they want to fire her from her job because she did this it's amazing to me so uh, people who have you know relatives who are buried there are going apeshit right there are other people who purport to be you know pro-military pro-troops they're going apeshit right and they started a Facebook page to have her fired right um, what is her name Lindsay Stone okay mm -hmm. so there's a there's a fire Lindsay Stone Facebook page and so she doesn't get to have a job ever because she did this. What she has to get a job. Somewhere. She's not disrespecting <laughs> right. the soldiers uh, right. who are buried there. She's she's making fun and doing a parody about that sign. Right. That's what she likes to do. Apparently, she likes to take pictures of herself disrespecting various signs, yes. smoking in front of a no, no smoking sign, right. and being loud and disrespectful in front of a sign that that, that asks for it. Yes. What is the big deal? If you really care about the troops, if you really care about the exactly. military, here's what I want you to do. Stop crying about Lindsey Stone mm -hmm. and instead go call your local uh, uh, congressman. congressman and demand that we stop cutting benefits for our returning servicemen. Right. And that we should increase their salaries and their pay and their benefits. We have uh, an outrageous and unacceptable number of uh, military personnel committing suicides. Um, the rate of homelessness is just shocking. I think it's one in six vets are now homeless. Uh, they are suffering from massive. Uh, Bill O'Reilly would say, "Show me syndrome. one." There's, show me one. What are you talking about? Show me one. Yeah, I mean, there's no the unemployment rate. We, we're cutting their job training, and this is what makes me sick about our society when we engage in this tokenism and, some, and symbolic gestures rather than engaging in real, meaningful. Uh, policies that impact real lives. Yeah. So I see these uh, little magnets on cars so support our troops. What what does that even mean? Support our troops. <laughs> I don't understand. Support what? Support their actions. It means don't say anything Sup bad against the war ever. That's exactly right. That's what that means. It's Shut war up. propaganda. And, it, and, yeah. and the other thing I can't stand is when we say, "Oh, there are heroes, 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 heroes." You know what? They're not our heroes. You know what they are? There are military personnel, and you know what they need? They need jobs. Right. You know what they need? Healthcare. Right. They need. They, they need to be treated like regular human beings who return from a, a very difficult assignment who need real assistance. Not to be called heroes and flag w waving their faces and to have a card magnet. That's not the, they don't need that. Right. And the same people who, uh, who um, you know, purport to love the troops in Washington are the same ones who are cutting their benefits all the time. It makes me sick. Uh, used to be you did one tour uh, during a war. Of, uh, in Vietnam. Now they're doing three tours, four tours, five tours, and you wonder why these people are flipping out and killing people and then coming home and killing themselves. These are, these are people who, you know, they say your brain isn't done developing to your 25. And we're doing this to these kids who are 18, 19, 20 years old. We're sending them to Afghanistan, five tours. It's you know what? A, it's a, that's, that's how you respect the military, if you stop doing that stuff. Uh, not by getting upset because some lady took some funny picture that she put on Facebook.
Euros Bamed, great discussion with guests today. I have to re-listen. Quote from Obama, there is no country on earth that would tolerate missiles raining down on its citizens from outside its borders. Except for maybe, apparently, Pakistan and the Sudan, right? Somalia. Somalia as well? We have drone programs in Somalia, Yemen, Pakistan, and, uh, yeah. Okay, so there are a couple, <laughs> a handful of countries that would allow it. Mm. But let's put it this way. Not from, maybe he should have just said, like, well, okay, to be fair, to be fair, these drone strikes happen from within the borders if you extend them up into the sky. <laughs> and so maybe, of course, we also sent a couple of, do we send any missiles from outside of, uh, well, I guess from ships, right, uh, on, uh, on Iraq? All right, so, okay, uh, Eurospamed, I guess you're going to be a bit of a stickler. <laughs> I can't even, I mean, that's like Bill O'Reilly level of unself-awareness. Yeah, indeed. Hey, James, this is Todd from an occupied Los Angeles. I was just listening to the fiscal cliff episode, and thank you very much for, for putting that out there. I think it's one of the uh, most important things that all of us need to uh, be fighting against right now. Um, you know, Jake's call from New York um, pointing out that uh, counting small businesses as the number of owners um, is a good point to bring up, but um, one thing that he didn't mention is that um, most businesses or people who start businesses uh, don't file that way as personal income uh, because they want to incorporate as an LLC, which limits their liability. Uh, my dad, you know, owns a company technically. You know, he's the one employee, and uh, he's an LLC, so then if something should happen, like he gets in a wreck or something like that, he doesn't lose his home. Um, so I'd also like to kind of combine a call for action for, for all you guys out there. Um, if you guys find a good anti-austerity, anti-fiscal cliff uh, article, meme, whatever, go to your local Occupy page, post it on there, and let the admins know about it. Um, and uh, all the rest of us Occupies will pick it up share it with one another and share it with a broader audience. Thanks. Hello, this is Sonia, first time caller to Best of the Left. A tangent off of the whole food issue thing, it was mentioned about how we talk about population control, but we never try to send any contraception or anything like that. And I say that's kind of the point. We have such an issue over sex in this culture. Hell, in almost any culture across the planet. We either giggle about sex or we drool over it while quickly hiding the magazines before anyone else can see. 
or we just yell at people telling them that they're not supposed to have it or that if they can have it, that they're doing it wrong. I don't know why it is that we can't talk about sex. We're just, we just tiptoe around it like it's some sort of forbidden thing. It's a bodily function. Hell, we seem to have an issue with all of our bodily functions, except to some degree of, like, eating. Anyway, that's my thoughts. Just one of the real problems we have is just a discomfort about sex. And that's it. That's my two cents. Thank you. Goodbye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So as an introduction to this conversation, uh, I want to mention that there's been a sort of an interesting discussion going on on uh, the David Feldman show. It's a, you know He's a comedian, but he does a podcast that's all about politics. He gets played on this show every once in a while. And, and the conversation they've been having, because David wanted to have it, was, was sort of a fundamental conversation about whether or not you can learn from conservatives by talking to them. And my opinion can be can be summed up in, in the, the best possible way with this one sentence that um, I believe that essentially professional conservatives cannot necessarily be learned from very much, but that individual, normal people who consider themselves conservatives can be learned from uh, in a particular way that, uh, you know, by listening to what they say about liberals, you can then sort of glean an insight, sort of of by uh, reverse engineering what they say, you can figure out like what they think about liberals, maybe what misconceptions they have, and so forth. And then you can sort of build your argument. This is if you're talking to family, that sort of thing. You can build your argument to, to say, this thing that you think about me or, or liberals in general, it might not be true because of this. And because you have an insight into where they're coming from, you can make a better argument. And so... Uh, just before the election, This American Life, one of the best uh, radio shows on the planet, did an entire episode about politics and, and sort of about uh, you know families and friends who were divided by politics. And uh, so there there were lots of clips of people arguing, and and it, it made it sound very hopeless. These the, you know these pairs of people who were great friends aside from politics and politics really divided them and there was a lot of talk about you know i just can't see how they believe that i just you know if they're going to continue down this road i have to not be friends with them and so on and so i want to play one little clip that that i feel like i learned something from and then i'll talk about it afterwards i guess i see most liberals as being selfish and she's not selfish and so that's what makes me so aggravated is that these liberals can be so selfish and she's not one and i just like you're you're not that heartless you got you cannot be there <laughs> where, where do you get the idea that liberals are selfish i'm curious because they don't want to they don't want to do anything to take care of people they just want somebody else to they want the government to they want and she doesn't she's just so giving and loving and she'll give anybody the shirt off her back and the shoes off her feet and so after the election, the big conservative media talking point was that Obama 
is Santa Claus. He gives out lots of free stuff, and that's why people vote for him. And, and that's why I say that professional conservatives, especially those in the media, you can't really learn from them. You can't really, uh, you know, take what they say and extrapolate larger meaning because there's a huge financial incentive for them to push talking points like that just to promote conservative ideas. Uh, but but this woman that we just heard is just a, she sounds like a very genuine woman who has a friend who's a liberal, and she's she seems to be racking her brain to figure out. I I believe that liberals are selfish. But this liberal person who I know isn't selfish. So why is she a liberal? And she like can't make that connection. And so my interpretation of that is to reverse engineer it and, and say that, well, one, she kind of said that, uh, you know, liberals don't want to help people. They want the government to help them, which is that fundamental difference between thinking that the government is an outside overbearing entity versus believing that the government is us. So if I want the government to help people, that is me helping people in, in a sense. Um, but, but the other thing is uh, kind of feeding from conservative media in general, talking about how Obama is Santa Claus and people vote to get free stuff for themselves. I, I sort of think that that filters down to a woman like this who then believes or, or implies or at least may believe that her friend is voting purely in her own self-interest. You know, liberal policies will help me, and I I vote based on just what's better for me, regardless of what's good for the country. And so, what I think maybe a clarifying point would be in in response is that if you're not a selfish person, you do want to help other people. You do vote, you know, your conscience for the the greater good of the country and not just for yourself. Then you could explain liberalism by saying that I I vote. For liberalism because it helps other people rather than just that it helps me. And that is how I personally feel. I think the country would be better off when poor people are helped by the government or when you know any any subset, any group is helped by the government. I think that's good. And so I feel like I'm selfless in a sense by advocating for policies like that rather than voting for what would be good just for me, either in tax policy or whatever. And so I just wonder what, what others think, if, if that is sort of the, the overarching feeling from listeners of this show, that, that they feel like their votes are selfless, or, uh, you, you know, because what I guarantee is true is that there are some people who vote Democrat because they're of a group that gets personal benefits uh, from liberal policies and they do vote selfishly. That is absolutely true, but it's implied that everyone votes that way and everyone votes for their own personal best interest. Everyone votes their own pocketbook and that's it. And you know, I, I think what conservatives reveal by that is that they actually do do that. That if, if you're voting for lower taxes, that really does pretty much just help you and not anyone else, unless you believe that lower taxes will lead to, you know, a better financial situation for the country as a whole, you know, but that, that can be argued in a variety of ways. So mostly I just want to put that out there as, you know, 
little window into the conservative mind, my interpretation of a lesson learned, you know, potentially it's information you could use over the holidays, talking with relatives or, or who knows what, um, you know, and then besides that, I'd be interested to hear what, what anyone has to say on the topic, if there's another in, uh, interpretation of the situation or, or your personal feelings on what motivates you to vote the way you do. I mean, my sense is that most people vote selflessly for Democrats who listen to this show, but of course I have no idea. So, you know, if you can kind of like be honest with yourself and, and, and really, you know, look inside and say, you know, am I voting selfishly and then want to call in and, and talk about that? I would love to hear that because if, if it turns out conservatives are right on that uh, in to, to any degree, like I would love to hear from those people uh, just, just to get your thoughts on it. So those are my thoughts on that and keep the voicemails coming in at 206-202-3410. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to everyone who supports the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations to the program. That is absolutely how the show survives. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. It's just a fun flower